We're in the book of Acts. Uh, and tonight, um, I was going to cover more than this because this upcoming chapter, I feel really loud. I loud. I'm just going to scoot this down and see if that helps. This, uh, um, this upcoming chapter has a lot of stuff, and we kind of touched a little bit on what we're going to talk about tonight. Next week, but as I was studying, I could not let go of this topic, and so we're going to unpack it a little more tonight. Um, but I didn't intend to do such a short little pericope, but I got stuck. So we've been talking about the book of Acts, and we talked last week. We kind of shifted our, our title to the, the tale of two temples, um, because what's been happening is as the church kind of started, and they kind of had this explosive beginning, since then, they've been kind of creating this social movement almost. Um, every time Luke tells us what's happening, he tells us kind of the impact it had and what the, the church started to do in the community. And they were taking care of, at this point, they were taking care of the poor. He said people were actually selling things to donate, to care for each other and to care for the poor. He constantly says nobody had any need because they were sharing things and everybody's needs were met. And this started to kind of draw the attention of the current temple. They're doing the things that the temple was originally set up to do. At this point, they're not trying to like divide the temples. Peter and, and John and, and them are still going to the temple every day. They're wanting to do this within the context of the temple, because at this point, this is a strictly Jewish thing. There are no non-Jewish believers. They just thought that this was going to revitalize Judaism. They thought that this was going to be kind of the fulfillment of what Judaism had been waiting for. The Messiah had finally come. They've been waiting for him for centuries, and he's here. And so they're kind of living out this lifestyle of what a living Messiah would have for them. And so um, they're doing the things the temple was originally intended to do, and this upset the current temple, the people who really kind of relied on people's dependence of the temple, because it was how they had their access to God. It was how they really got um, any alms that were offered in the area. So when the church is kind of taking over those things, it bothered those whose power was derived from the current structure. And so these people started to push back. And it started with some simple threats. They arrested Peter and, and James, and they, they threatened them and said, no more preaching in the name of Jesus. And they kept preaching. And, uh, um, and so the next time they arrested Peter, they actually imprisoned him. An angel broke him out, um, and he goes immediately back to preaching. They arrest him again, and this time they beat him. And the way this was done was they stripped him, stretched him over a log or a table, and basically beat him uh, with uh, lashes. And, and the apostles thought this was a good deal. They thought it was, uh, so they were proud to suffer shame for Christ. And so, um, and so this is the temple starting to push back. And then last week we talked about when it really hit the fan. Um, because Stephen, they... They had had a problem, um, kind of almost a, a dispute, an argument within the church because some of the widows were being neglected. Those who weren't uh, directly from Jerusalem, those who were kind of from the outskirts and had come in, were getting neglected in the daily offerings, and some people started to complain. And so the apostles assigned the deacons. They assigned some people to kind of make sure that everything was fair and everybody got what they deserved. So... Um, so Stephen is amongst these seven people who were chosen. And last week we read where he was, he was a standout kind of guy. Like his, when, the, when he first gave his testimony, so they saw that he had a face like an angel, which probably looks something like this. But I'm not, no. 
Um, so he, uh, so he, um, he was a standout guy, and he's making an impact, and this bothered um, the apostles. Elijah, can you find the channel for the uh, thing and turn it down just a little bit? I feel like I'm on the edge of feedback. Um, so they arrest him, and some, they, they couldn't find anything uh, wrong with him, so they hired some people to bear false witness. And, and these guys came and said that he was stirring things up. He was trying to overthrow the temple. He's doing all this stuff. And they ask him, you know, what is all this true? And so he gives a kind of a recap of the Old Testament. But the way he recaps it, he, he says it accurately, but he says it in a way to kind of bring to light some patterns that were there um, that really bothered him. So he said, Moses shows up and nobody recognizes he's the deliverer. And they denied him. And, uh, and then after Moses shows up, well, at first he starts with Joseph. He says, God gives men signs to Joseph and visions to Joseph and his brothers denied him. And they go into captivity and then comes Moses and he shows up to be the deliverer and they denied him. And then come the prophets and they show up to speak for God and they deny him. They, so he was like, I don't understand how you can't recognize the pattern. It feels like everybody God sends to you, you deny and here comes the Messiah and you miss him too. And so they're enraged. They drag him outside the city and they stone him. They kill him. And the very last lines they left us with last week was that everybody, I guess stoning is hot work. They take off their coats and they give their coats to Paul and Paul holds them while they throw the rocks. And so um, the tonight story kind of picks up where that left off. So it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. We're talking about Stephen. And at the time of great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc in the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to a city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the, story, in the city. So this story starts to set up Paul. It kind of, kind of introduces us to this character of Paul who's going to play a really major role in the rest of the book and probably becomes the most influential Christian writer ever. So... This is kind of his intro to the story, but more than that, Luke is, is, is I think he's telling the story here. Every, every great writer, you, they tell you that you've got to bring three things into every, everything you write. Logos, ethos, and pathos is the way they teach it. Logos is your logical argument. You've got you to be accurate with the facts. Ethos is your ethical, like compelling, let's say the world argument. And pathos is your emotional argument. It's where you, you bring in... So the, the pathos argument is what's supposed to stir the heart. And Luke's choice of language here is, is dripping with pathos. That sometimes when we read the scripture, we're kind of clinical with it and we kind of miss it. So he thinks like, says things like great persecution. This word great is megas in the Greek. It's, it's the, the biggest word you can put there. There's, there's a lot of persecution. There's much persecution. Then there's megas persecution, which is like really heavy persecution. They were scattered, spread out. 
It says there was great lamentations, megas lamentations. The word lamentations in the Greek literally means breast beating, like just pounding in grief over Stephen's death. Said Saul wreaked havoc on the church. This is to ruin or to spoil, to make filthy and, and disorganized. So, so we've had this picture of this church being one accord and this, this awesome peace that's, that's everywhere. And everyone's getting their needs met. And then comes Saul and it says he wreaked havoc. He just broke it all up and scattered it. So he went in, entering into every house. Like we read this like it's just a story, but imagine this, this is your house. And doors kicked open, somebody's just walking into your house and dragging people out. If you've ever seen a grown person be drug anywhere, it's a violent thing. This is not like, come with me. Trying to drag in a little kid, mom, right? You try and drag a little kid and it's a violent thing. Like, it's, they can throw a fit, right? So he's picking words that are laced with emotion. These are like really emotional. This is, he's telling us this is a bad scene. Like, don't skip over how heavy this is. Like, the church has been growing, it's been prospering, it's been doing awesome, and in comes Paul with a chip on his shoulder and, and out breaks this terrible, uh, this terrible scene, which brings up our tension point for the day. God versus evil. Um, and this is a tough one. Uh, because Christianity has this, what's, technically classified a heresy that um, most of us hang on to and it's subtle and it kind of creeps into our thinking and that is that that God and Satan or God and evil are kind of yin and yang they're equal they're equal forces vying for our um, for our lives and that sometimes God wins some and sometimes Satan wins some and that there are these these kind of two combating forces pretty evenly matched who both want to kind of dictate our, our destiny. And this is called dualism. And, it's, we, and the problem is we're giving Satan more credit than he actually deserves. Satan is a created thing. Satan and God are not equal forces that are vying for us. And so, so we have to make sure that when we're, when we're worrying about Satan, when we're considering what might be Satan's influences in our life, that we don't give him a godlike power over us or a godlike presence in our life, because that's not it. But the problem is, if we diminish Satan, we've got to figure out what to do with evil. And this creates a problem. And it usually shows up like this. If God is good and evil happens, then he must not be all-powerful. And if he's all-powerful and evil happens, he must not be good. You guys ever heard this argument? You guys ever struggle with this? This is a big one. You hear this one a lot. People struggle with if he's as powerful as you say and there's evil, why didn't he stop it? That must mean he's not good. And if he's as good as you say and evil is there, that means he can't stop it. So he must not be powerful. Anybody feel that tension in you? You're like, please tell me you're going to answer this question. I don't like this at all. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. And we have to continue with it. We can't hide from this. Because this is out there, and this is what bothers people. And the problem with this is, especially when we consider evil, and I like the way Martin Luther King Jr. in a letter from a Birmingham jail says this, and I like it. It says, the only way I could know that a human law is unjust is if there's a higher law from God. 
So the only way I can even be offended by evil is if I have something better to compare it to that shows up the evil. If that, does that make sense? Sartre said it like this. If God does not exist, there is no longer any possibility for an a priori good. And nowhere written, or it is nowhere written without God that one should not lie or steal. Dostoyevsky adds this one, and then I'm going to wrap them up. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. If God does not exist, we have neither behind us nor ahead a luminous realm of values, nor any justification for any behavior whatsoever. So the problem is, if you take God out of the picture, because we like to use this argument with God versus evil as a reason to not believe in God or to not follow God. The problem is, if God does not exist, if you remove God from the equation, who's to say what happened to you is evil? Like, who's to say that it was, how, how do you not know that that's just not the way things are supposed to be? If you take God out of the picture and someone steals from you, like, if you look at the animal kingdom, they steal from one another all the time. Stuff happens all the time. If you're faster, I mean, I've got chickens in my backyard, and it's like a game. We throw one piece of food out just to see which chicken gets it, and he'll run half of the thing, and then someone else will catch him and grab it and run back the other way. It's like watching football. It's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty redneck. Chicken football. Um... But who's to say that these things are even evil if there's no God? This could be just the way life works. Like the injustice we feel when bad things happen, the, the problem we have in our soul, when someone dies early and, and you're trying to wrestle with that, what that is, is it's your heart knowing from the scripture that death is not supposed to be part of the story. It's your heart knowing things aren't right. Like, when, when someone takes something from you, and there's not enough, or when you have lack, there's, it's your soul crying out for a garden where there was abundance of everything. It's your soul saying, I know this is not the way things were supposed to be. When we're lonely, it's because something in us knows we're supposed to walk in the garden in the cool of the night with our God. Like, the more we feel evil, and the more it bothers us, the more evidence we have that everything God says about the world is true. When we're offended by injustice and we're offended by evil and when things happen that are out of line, whether they're natural or whether somebody else does them to us, it's our heart saying this world is broken just like God said it was broken. Like this is, it's, to not believe in God because of evil is completely illogical. Our struggle with evil, the fact that we know it's evil, we know in our guts that it's evil, and the fact that that bothers us is one of the best evidences that everything God says is real, that he is real. And the problem with that is it's philosophy. It's, an, it's a mental argument. And if you've ever been in real pain, you know mental arguments mean squat. Someone can give you the best rational answer in the world for why this doesn't make any sense and it doesn't help your pain any. So... That's what brings us to the cross. And the cross will not tell you why evil exists. It won't do it. But it will tell you why evil doesn't, like, it will tell you some of the reasons it doesn't exist. Evil doesn't exist because God doesn't care. The cross screams to the contrary. The cross screams how much he cares. Evil can't exist because he's indifferent or above it all. 
The cross shows that he chose to get into our pain, to like enter it, not to stay apart from it, but to enter our pain. The cross doesn't show that, that he doesn't sympathize with us. When we lose someone, we, we can sense the Father on the edge of heaven losing his only begotten Son, knowing what that feels like. When we're alone and, and that hurts, we can sense Jesus screaming, why have you forsaken me in his loneliness? Like the cross is where God meets our pain. It's where he like feels it with us. And most importantly, especially in light of the resurrection, the cross is where our pain finds some hope. And that's what brings us back to our story tonight. Remember in chapter 1, Luke kind of laid out our outline for this book. And Jesus sent out the apostles who said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we kind of said, that's going to be the outline of this book. They're going to start in Jerusalem, and it's just going to tell the story as they scatter through this outline, right? As they just kind of spread through this outline. Well, look what happens tonight. It says, and at this time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So something in this persecution kind of pushes them to Roman numeral 2 and 3 on our outline. Like it kind of pushes them into the next part of the story. And, and please don't forget, this is a great persecution. It's a megas persecution. This is not academic. This is an emotional moment for them. But still, it becomes the catalyst for something even bigger. And the word choices here are kind of interesting. This word scatter is uh, diaspero, which is where we get the word diaspora, which is what we, the word we use to talk about the Jews that have kind of been scattered all over the world out of Jerusalem. But this word only shows up three times in the New Testament, in the entire New Testament. They're all in the book of Acts. And they're all speaking of the way the church is moved by persecution to the next place. And, it, and it ever, all, it's used three times, and all three times the church, somebody has moved to a new place. And Luke chooses the word diaspora, um, which is a compound word made up of dia, which means abroad, so it's scattered abroad. And then spiero, which is the word that 100% of the times, it just means scatter, so diaspora means scattered abroad. So spiero means scatter, and 100% of the times this is used in the New Testament, it's used a lot. It's always agricultural. It's the word to sow, as in a sower went to sow seed. So for some reason, and there's a lot of words for people being spread around and people going places, Luke chooses this word that means to plant seed. So when he talks about the church being persecuted and having to go and run from persecution, literally run for their lives, to get away from this terrible persecution, the word he uses is they were planted. They were planted in a different place. So this great persecution happens in the church and all these people are planted elsewhere. And this gives us a hope. Like maybe, maybe the pain we go through Maybe the evil we see, maybe the things that make no sense to us have a reason. Maybe there is a reason for it. And again, Luke, when he tells the second half of the story, right after this therefore, which is kind of a big transition point, he says, therefore, 
Those who were planted went everywhere preaching the word. I love that. They didn't, they didn't run and hide. They didn't run and complain about the temple in Jerusalem. They continued to do what they were already doing in a new place. Like the, the audacity in the face of watching people get drug out of their homes and thrown in prison and Stephen violently murdered is to go, we'll go to the next city and preach and just see what happens there. They just kept preaching. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing miracles, which he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice and coming out of those who were possessed. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. It's amazing that in eight verses we go from this violent death and people being drugged from their homes in this terrible scene to it ending with and great joy was throughout the entire city. And that is the dream. That's the hope. That somehow these bad things that happen to us, somehow these hard things we go through, somehow these things that make no sense to us and why did this have to happen, at the end of the day end with great joy Megas joy uses that same word there. Megas, which isn't used that often. That there was megas joy in the city. So how do we respond to this? Let's start by looking at Jesus' suffering because it's kind of really similar. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and it sat down at the right hand of God, or the, of the throne of God. So it was for joy, this megas joy, was why Jesus endured the cross. And we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves what, what, what was the, the content of that joy? Like, so you might even say, like, why, why would I go through this? Why would I endure this? What's the payoff? And for Jesus, it couldn't have been to be with God. So the old answer to be in heaven with God forever can't be the answer because he had that before he endured the joy or the pain. He already had that. He didn't have to step into human suffering and go to a cross and suffer so that he could have that joy. He already had that. So what was the joy that made that worth it, that made the cross worth it? It was this. It was you and me. It was That's what he wasn't willing to live without. That's what made it worth it. Not just being with God. He was already with God. Not to say that being with God is not going to be amazing. Obviously, that's going to be amazing. And that's, that's the goal. But there's something about this, something about people connected, loving God together, doing life together, made the cross worth it, made it worth enduring all of the evil. Jesus thought this was enough of a takeaway. So can I explain why evil exists? No, obviously I can't. I'm not going to try. Come on, I know. No, I won't do it. <laughs> not in a way that would satisfy a hurting heart. I, just, I don't have that in me. But I can promise you this. Pain is no better away from God. 
it's worse. It makes less sense when you're away from God. Pain isn't easier away from the body. It's harder when you don't have people to bear the load with you. And finally, pain can have a purpose. And I know we, we, we know this. Most of us have lived this in one way. Most of us are, are living in a place where we know I'm only in a place I love because I went through something I hated. Fifteen years ago, I had an absolute moral collapse. It almost ruined my marriage, almost ruined my ministry, almost ruined my life, really. And it was hard to put things back together after that. And I would never in a million years want to go through it again. Not in a, like anything I could do to avoid that kind of pain, I would avoid with everything in me. And yet I also know I would not be the person I am today. I was an ass before that. Pardon my language. And something in that moment, something in that failure broke me. And I could no longer pretend to be the person I thought I was. I had to own up and, with who I was. And something in that moment created a me that was more real and hopefully more humble, says the guy who said he had an angel's face. <laughs> and though I would never want to go through it again, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I would never look back and say, I, if I could go back and not do that, I would go back and not do that. Because I don't want to be that guy again. And I know that's an anecdote. I know that's just a story of, of how my pain turned out to have purpose. And I know sometimes when you're in a lot of pain, that doesn't always help. But the cross led to resurrection. The cross led to, led to life abundant. And all we can do is hope that our pain can bear some fruit, some useful fruit. And our church is full of these stories. A lot of us are here because we got kicked around somewhere else. Because other churches like closed down and hearts were broken and, and a lot of us were were abused or in pain from other places and it was almost like everything we went through was like God was planting us somewhere else. So all we can do is hope that that's why we're here. All we can do is hope that that all that pain was to bring us here to do another work, to do something good, to bring great joy to a new place, to make us joy to a new place. The best picture I have of this or the best little quote one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis, I know most of you have heard this, you could probably quote it with me, everybody quotes it. C.S. Lewis in um, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when uh, Mr. Beaver is kind of explaining the lore of, of Narnia to the four kids, kind of explaining to them how things work, he tells them about Aslan, and nobody had any idea what he was talking about. And he said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
but he's good. I can't say anything as well as C.S. Lewis can, but definitely not that. Is God safe? No. There's nothing about God that is safe. And if safety is what you're after, he's not where you're going to find it. But I can promise you he's good. I can promise you he's good. So as we come to the table tonight, I would say that Jesus knew better than anyone else that God is not safe. As he kneeled in the garden and prayed, God, if there's any way to do this other than this way, I vote for that one. I don't want to do this. And yet he was willing to go to the cross for you and for me. Because he knew that even though his father wasn't safe, he was good. So as Jesus took the bread, giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And he, after the meal, he took the cup and giving thanks, he lifted it up and said, this is the, the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, which shall be poured out for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. So whenever we take this bread and we take this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread and this cup, for this table. And we just ask that more than anything, it might give us hope. That the, that the terrible things we go through might have a purpose. Might have a reason. And that they might bear good fruit. God, we don't like talking about these things. They scare us. But we can always come back to the table and we can always see the bread and the cup and know that there's resurrection. Know that there's life in brokenness. And so God, we just ask that tonight as we partake of this bread and this cup, we would find hope.